Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, uh, welcome to another podcast of new books in terrorism and organised crime. I'm Mark Locks, your host, uh, speaking from Brisbane in Australia. And today we have uh, Charles Miranda on the line, and he's going to be talking about his book, Deception, the true story of the international drug plot that brought down Australia's top law enforcer, Mark Standen. Hello, Charles. How are you? Very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Uh, this is a great book. Um, normally the books we cover, we get a lot of academic books on the podcast, but I really enjoyed this because I can remember when Mark Standard was arrested. It was quite a big thing here in Australia that a senior police officer would get arrested. And I saw your book and thought I had to try and get you on the podcast. So thank you very much for participating. No, thank you. Thank you very much. So um, to start off, we'll just do a brief background of what your personal biography is and how you actually came to write this particular book. Um, all right. Well, look, I, uh, I've been kicking around, I guess, for, uh, for 20, 20 odd years, about my 25th year or something like that in, uh, in journalism. Worked for uh, a number of the papers. Um, I've worked for uh, a British Fleet Street paper for a while, the London Evening Standard, which was a fantastic experience to see how the... Uh, the Brits uh, did it, rightly or wrongly, of course. Um, and, uh, of course, now working for, uh, for News, Corp, uh, News Corp Australia. Pretty much worked in every section of the paper over the years um, and, and for other newspapers as well. The Canberra Times for about five years there in Canberra. So, yeah, worked everywhere. Sport, music, began in, in, uh, in music, bizarrely, uh, just because they happened to want a music writer, and I sort of said, yep, I'll do that. <laughs> you take any job that's, uh, that's going. Um, but pretty much since, um, I would say, mid-90s, I've been a political correspondent um, based in the, uh, in the press gallery um, for the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, Korea Mail, uh, Adelaide Advertiser, all the, uh, the news group. Um, uh, then I've done uh, various stints overseas, um, pretty much worked everywhere around the world doing different assignments, but then more permanently uh, in Europe as the European correspondent, which is, uh, which is where I'm based at the moment. Excellent, excellent. So uh, what brought Mark Standen to your attention? Uh, look, that was, a, uh, that was one of those stories that uh, you hear a rumour. Most good stories start off uh, with talk in a pub or a rumour or a, a, you know, a one-line email or... Uh, some anonymous tip that comes through. This one came up in, uh, in a conversation I was having in a, in a pub around about 2007, and uh, I thought, oh, that's all very interesting. Obviously, there's no mention of, uh, of Mark Standen or the Crime Commission that he was working for at the time, nothing like that. It was more just sort of discussion on networks and, uh, and things like that. Um, now, these are sort of pubs where you get, uh, very strangely, you get the good guys and the bad guys. You get the criminals drinking uh, side by side with the police. Uh, the two groups don't necessarily know each other, but it's, it's just sort of an all-in that's a sort of uh, scene in, uh, in Sydney. Um, so, yeah, I heard a rumour. Then I was based in, uh, in Europe, 
and I uh, wrote a few little stories that sort of linked a few of these uh, organised crime groups, notably uh, the Italian crime groups with another crime group, another crime group um, around Europe, including the, uh, the Dutch and, and a crime group in the, in the UK. Uh, and it was around about that time then that uh, my editor in Sydney uh, gets a call from the Australian Federal Police saying, we need to talk. And uh, he rings me up in the UK at uh, some ungodly hour and said, <laughs> what's happened? Tell me why I've got the Federal Police coming in to, uh, to see me in the next couple of hours. Of course, I, I had no idea. I just did a very small story talking about uh, crime groups in, uh, in Europe. But... Um, what I had done, of course, is, is stumbled onto uh, onto the story off off Mark Standen, of which the AFP had invested uh, a lot of investigation time into. And of course, uh, the last thing they wanted was a, a journalist coming in on their story uh, and potentially uh, blowing out their uh, their investigation. Yeah, well, just say to to people who listen to this who aren't from Australia, the AFP is very similar to the FBI in its jurisdiction but they're still uniformed police officers in many ways as well. Indeed, at one stage, uh, the Australian Federal Police were modelling themselves on the FBI, and uh, in the late 90s, they, were, they changed their, their titles from officers to agents, and they actually went by, uh, by the title agents, much the same as the, uh, the FBI, and their structures are very similar. They did a lot of, uh, sort of um, study groups on how the FBI worked. Uh, in recent times, though, they've gone back to the um, almost the old structure. But yes, they're very much the uh, the national police force that sort of uh, garnishes the uh, the information from all the state police forces, creates the intelligence, and critically is the uh, the point of contact, is the liaison group that talks to people like the uh, the FBI, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency in the, in the United States, uh, uh, SOCA in uh, in the UK, which is the um, super organised crime. Uh, Police, uh, police group there and, uh, and various other uh, detachments around the world. Yeah, one of their rites of passage as the people move up the ranks in the AFP is to actually go to the FBI for a, a training session. Everyone gets to do, depending on what area they're in, and if you ever go and meet an FBI of, uh, AFP officer in their uh, headquarters, they've all got their FBI coffee mugs as their sign that they've done their training. Fantastic. How do I get one of those? <laughs> yeah, we've well, got to do the training. you got to do <laughs> So um, what did uh, Mark Standen do that actually brought him to the attention of the AFP? He was an ex-AFP officer, wasn't he? He was an ex-AFP officer, and then he joined, well, there was the National Crime Authority, which was another federal law enforcement uh, uh, group um, since disbanded um, uh, or evolved into, uh, into something else. And then he joined the, uh, the New South Wales Crime Commission. So the Crime Commission works very much like the uh, the AFP, but they go after assets more than anything else. Um, and uh, if they need to do uh, raids or whatever else, they'll they'll then call in the uh, the AFP. But they're an intelligence group. They they give it a lot of intelligence. They do a lot of liaisons again with um, with counterparts uh, overseas. So Mark Stanham was working for this New South Wales um, uh, law enforcement group, but he was fairly well recognised uh, across Australia as being probably one of the country's top cops, certainly in the uh, in the top ten of law enforcers. He'd been around for thirty odd years. He, he you know he was an, had an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of the good guys, the bad guys, 
the structures, um, you know, you name it, the, the methods for uh, importing uh, importing drugs. There wasn't much that he didn't uh, know about, so he was pretty much the, the go-to guy. And certainly, when the uh, the Australian Federal Police were having high-level discussions with state police or, or overseas uh, um, police chiefs, Mark was uh, was generally involved in those in some way, um, either as, as an active presenter or certainly uh, certainly sitting in the bound. So he was the man. He was very uh, very uh, senior, and uh, yeah exposed, as it were, to, uh, to all forms of, uh, of criminality. And I guess somewhere along the line, he started looking at some of the uh, bad guys he was dealing with, and he, he operated fairly closely with them in a, um, in a law enforcement way. I mean, he had, uh, he had lots of contacts, um, uh, bad guys, basically, um, who would provide him information, provide him with tips, etc., etc. But there was a couple that he particularly got a little bit too close to, and I think he saw what they had done and how they were operating, um, these informers, and he suddenly thought, well, gee, how is it that I'm the law enforcer and I'm doing this great job and, and doing all this sort of stuff, and here are the bad guys, and they're effectively making more money than me. And I think that was, uh, that was one, of the, uh, one of the turning points. In terms of how he came to the, uh, the attention of authorities, though, that was, that was fairly interesting. There was a couple of major uh, international drug imports into Australia, and uh, Mark Standen's informers told him about those. Now, as we later learned, some of these uh, drug imports were by rival groups, so not groups necessarily connected to Standen or his informers. There were, there were, uh, there were others. And, of course, there were some that were his. Um, but he was the, uh, the lead on some of these things, and he would tip off the AFP and go, hey, listen, if you get down to, uh, down to the docks in Sydney, you'll find, uh, you'll find this, and this is where you'll find it. Um, on this ship, uh, in this sea container, in this um, consignment of uh, whatever it happens to be, whether it's you know, candles or machinery uh, or what have you. So his name was on a lot of these sort of uh, cases. Not unusual, of course, because that's, uh, that's what he did. Um, but then when police intelligence overseas started to hear little whispers around the Dutch cartels, the Dutch um, uh, synthetic drugs cartels, started hearing whispers about an Australian police officer involved in some of these uh, operations. Of course, then the AFP sort of said, well, let's have a look as to why. Now, again, it could have been involved in a good way. It could have been involved in a bad way. The, uh, the telephone intercepts that the, uh, the overseas police were, uh, were making didn't quite go to the, uh, to the heart of it. So they had a bit of information there. And, uh, and then, of course, one of their key targets overseas was a, was a, a British man. And uh, once the Australian Federal Police started following him, they realised he was actually an informer to Mark Standen. And uh, to quote the, uh, the police chiefs at the time, they then simply joined the dots. It was all starting to stack up. But uh, if there was a, a rat in the rank, then they'd have to put his name up on the big whiteboard as a potential suspect. Mm. Um, he had, a, he had an incentive to look for the extra money too, because in his private life, he was a big gambler. Yeah, look, he he, uh, he gambled. Um, uh, you know, he enjoyed the odd uh, the odd drink. Nothing unusual though. That was the weird thing. Yeah. He wasn't placing uh, huge bets. Nothing that his uh, his friends that would particularly jump out of him. He didn't lead a, a lavish life by uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He lived in a very very suburban, very ordinary house um, just north of Sydney. 
um, quite a, a, I wouldn't say a cheap area, but it's certainly, you know, it's a middle class area, nothing, uh, nothing fancy there. Um, so there was nothing to sort of suggest that uh, he was receiving any, any form of, uh, of other income. Right, right. So, yeah, he wouldn't have fit a profile as a potential um, rat in the ranks from anything he was doing. No, not at all, not at all. But listen, they uh, they said the, the police were having to obviously launch a, a very covert operation, and they said if it is going to be one of our people, um, and of course uh, the crime commission, New South Wales crime commission, was kind of like one of their one of their people, but they said if it was going to be one of our people. We've got to be extra careful because uh, you know they know how we operate. They know what to look for. If we're going to put a um, a listening device in his phone, he will find it. If we're going to put a listening device around his house, he will probably find it. So how are we going to uh, how are we going to see if it's uh, if this is our man, if this is the suspect? And look, they were looking at other people as well. Um, uh, again, nothing necessarily on the wall against any of these people. They just had to look at every possible suspect who was in, in what the uh, the Dutch police called a crooked hat, in other words, a uh, a bank copper. So they had the intelligence from uh, uh, from the Dutch police with the telephone intercepts. They had all these sort of drug busts, um, some of which fell over. They didn't sort of uh, find the owners. They found the drugs, but no one came to collect the parcels. It was almost like someone had been uh, tipping off the bad guys around Sydney, Brisbane, and elsewhere when these drug imports were coming through. Um, uh, and then they had, um, uh, you know, Mark Stanton's key informer being this uh, this British guy who happened to be involved with the uh, with the Dutch cartel. So as soon as uh, some of those things started to line up, they um, they registered up their uh, their own internal uh, investigations. Now, one of the key things they did, which was a, a little tactic the police used, they hid a camera inside his computer behind the screen. So every time he called up a screen, it would take a photo off that screen. Now, you can put other forms of tracking devices on computers, but, of course, uh, if you erase emails um, uh, or documents or whatever, they're very hard to, uh, or can be quite hard to, uh, to trace. Having a camera in there, every time a screen or an email came up, Bash, the camera would, uh, would take an image off that message, and then, of course, whoever the suspect was, whether it was standing or someone overseas, they'd erase it and start again, but it was too late. That image was, uh, that image was captured. That was a crucial piece of, uh, piece of uh, police work that, uh, that they did to, uh, to help bring the case to a closure. The, the uh, actual uh, connections that Stanton had in himself were um, communicating in a particular way in the chat rooms, too, so they were trying to not leave a trial. It was actually quite clever. You want to talk about that? How they were all opening a single message and yeah, yeah. Look, they um, they use the sort of the standard uh, email platforms that uh, that you or I use. You know, the, in one instance, they, they had accounts, uh, they had numerous accounts within uh, within Hotmail, for example. But they would all open a, a particular document. So they would all sign in, open a particular document, and communicate sort of live on a document. So they weren't sending sort of numerous emails. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, across the world, although they did, did do that as well, all very coded, of course. But they used this sort of um, this sort of strategy that if we all write on the same document and erase and write and erase and write, then there's no sort of uh, trail that uh, they can link any of us. Now, overtly, they used all sorts of uh, of code names, mostly women, surprisingly. Um, you know, things like Myrtle asking Linda how her grandfather was, or or whatever else. All code for um, you know how's that drug import or, or where is it at? Um, how is so and so this you know a particular contact um, or uh, or person they were using to uh, to import the drugs? So they had all sorts of uh, 
codes and of course the, um, the accounts were being accessed from all over the world and that was critical as well because the, um, the Australian Federal Police couldn't be everywhere so they then linked forces with, gee, in the end probably about 14 different police forces um, around the world, predominantly around Europe. But these uh, email accounts have been accessed from uh, you know, the UK, Germany, Portugal, Spain, Dubai, uh, literally, um, literally anywhere and everywhere. So it was a, a hell of a, uh, a jigsaw puzzle to put together for, uh, for the cops back home. So what actual um, transaction was Standing going to participate in? How did he, how was he going to uh, involve himself in the operation? Yeah, for a long time, no one really knew, and they had all sorts of theories uh, as they tried to unravel the uh, the code, both with the Australian Federal Police in Australia, but also the uh, the Dutch, the, the National Crime uh, uh, Police there in uh, in Holland. They didn't actually know what the import was, and then they started getting the whisper, well, it's pseudoephedrine. Now, the Dutch don't recognise pseudoephedrine as a drug precursor, necessarily, so it's not an offence. To, to have um, uh, or to misuse pseudoephedrine. Of course, pseudoephedrine, as, as some of your listeners might know, is uh, you know, it's a fairly basic compound. You can get it in, uh, in headache tablets uh, and the like. But of course, in vast quantities, it can make, uh, make ecstasy. So in, in Holland, they obviously recognised that and they sort of said, well, gee, unless he's getting it in, in big imports, we don't know if we're that fussed about um, him with his... Uh, you know, pseudoephedrine is some of these precursor drugs. But then, of course, they started hearing conversations about quantities, and it was it was in bulk. Um, it was in the hundreds of kilos, not just a uh, not just a couple of kilos. So all of a sudden, they said, "Okay, well, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a uh, for a chemical now. How is it going to get imported?" And that was very curious. For months, the Dutch police had a little cafe. Um, and I actually went to that cafe. It's a little tiny thing. It's almost a hole in the wall type cafe with a with a fax machine uh, that customers can use. You know, sell ice creams and obviously uh, coffees. But it was actually a front business for um, for transacting globally in drugs. Um, and it had a had a business name and it would send out faxes supposedly with uh, with order forms and what have you. So people around the world can send a fax uh, to this group to this cafe. Hong Wall Cafe and uh, and make their uh, their orders ostensibly for uh, for goods, uh, food products, um, uh, ladies' lingerie as well, um, stockings, those sort of things. But of course, um, police around the world realised that whoever was receiving a fax from this business were actually in the market for uh, for drugs, nothing to do with uh, with foodstuffs or uh, or uh, undergarments. So. Uh, and people knew about this cafe for a very long while, but they just thought, you know what, let's just let it keep it running its business because as it runs its business, we can nail all sorts of um, uh, drug groups around the world with making orders and receiving uh, receiving orders. So they're very, very, it became very quickly known um, that, uh, uh, you know, in Australia was going to be a consignment of rice, which ended up being the, uh, the final product. But they were saying, okay, we now need to look for rice because... We can see that there's orders going to Pakistan. There's a certain group over there that are exporting rice um, uh, legitimately, and it really was ice, uh, rice, I should say. So. But within the rice was going to be the precursor to make ice, and uh, and that was the sort of the gag that uh, a lot of these guys were, uh, were having on email. Oh, can't wait for the rice, in the sort of commas and those sort of things. 
they weren't really good at this sort of uh, game, really. They uh, <laughs> had all sorts of uh, codes and things. It was very much like, I think one of the, uh, the Dutch police officers mentioned to me, it was almost like Reservoir Dogs, you know, there was Mr. Blue meeting Mr. Green. Yes. Um, there's Mr. Sharp Suit. You know, they had all these sort of code names. But every now and then they would drop the ball, they would give something away, uh, they'd give another hint. And every time they did that, police would wipe their brow and go, Phew, okay, chalk that one up. Now we can start to think something else. Because otherwise it was all a lot of uh, gobbledygook out there. Yeah. Now, Stanton um, actually set up a front business that he told people about, but he was going to use that business to bring the uh, chemicals into Australia. Uh, and he had a partner as well. Do you want to talk about him? Yeah, that's right. Look, um, uh, it, it was his partner um, um, who he knew through uh, through connections. Um, his partner, his name was uh, Bill Jellalapi. Um, he was essentially a, a greengrocer in, uh, in Western Sydney. He was an importer of uh, goods. Quite a good one too. Um, legitimate. It was all very much a, a legitimate business. But through various contacts, um, he came across uh, Mark Standen and uh, really still to this day, I don't know whether it was true or not, but Mark Sandon said, well, I want to go to business with you. You know, I can see you're doing a good business here. Let me give you some uh, some money and uh, I'll join the import business. And, uh, you know, he was looking at importing all sorts of products, notably a, um, an apple cider, um, timber, uh, all sorts of goods. I mean, it was a huge range. And uh, again, for police, that was a bit of an indication that, well, really... You know, how legitimate is it that a copper with 30 years standing is suddenly going to be looking at importing, you know, things like rice and uh, you know, large-scale uh, timber imports to make houses and furniture and, and drinks and uh, beer. I mean, it didn't quite ring true. Um, and, of course, this uh, greengrocer, Bill Joe, that in Sydney, he was kind of small-time. And for him to suddenly want to enter the big league in, in legitimate imports, become this huge company that didn't quite ring true either when, uh, when the police behind the scenes started to look at, uh, look at his books. So there was a few odd things starting to happen here. And again, we don't know whether um, Mark Stanton ever really wanted to get into uh, a legitimate business with, with Bill and it developed into something illegal or whether the whole thing was a front. That was never quite established because there was just a talk would come and go about the business they would run and it was never quite nailed as to whether it was true. And these weren't just telephone taps either. Police had these guys under extensive surveillance, and uh, we've seen some of the uh, the footage and, and heard the tapes. I mean, there was, the police knew exactly what their favourite coffee shop was, so there'd be a, a listening device there. Um, they would have a, a remote listening device, you know, they could point out the window and point at them and hear the conversations. Um, in other occasions, listening devices didn't work for whatever reason, but they had the photos. They, they saw packages being uh, being handed off, packages being money. Um, Mark Stanton was handing uh, uh, a lot of money over. Um, oh, sorry, the other way around, I should say, Bill Joe Latton was handing a lot of money over to Mark Stanton, who said, you know, I'm in debt this week, can you help me out? Call it a down, to pay, uh, down deposit, a sort of forward payment for what uh, they hoped would be this huge drug import to um, to get them both out of the, uh, the financial troubles that they were, uh, they were in. Yeah. Now, Bill didn't have any prior involvement in organised crime activity at all, did he? Not at all. Absolutely clean skin, and uh, and that really jumped out at police as a, as a bit of an anomaly. They were, you know, why would this guy want to get involved? 
Um, so they started looking at his sort of broader circle. Who were his friends? A, why, why did he know Bill, um, uh, Mark Sandon? And also, why did he want to be involved in, in something like this? They didn't have to look too far. Bill Joe Lutley's wife was an ex-Australian Federal Police officer um, uh, who was a friend of Mark Sandon. So all of a sudden they thought, well, there's a the connection. That's how they, they know each other. Um, and now they said, well, why would he want to go for this, uh, this increased business, you know? The, uh, the green growth of business was good. Why would he want to do, uh, do imports? And it was simply greed in the end. They just looked at the, uh, the figures, or he looked at the figures. And, uh, you know, we were talking an import of up to $120 million. This was back in 2006, uh, seven. So that was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money today, of course. $120 million worth of precursor drugs. So there were some big riches to be had, and I think both men were uh, recorded in conversations um, discussing, you know, how this money would be spent, what they would do, but how to get them out of trouble. Of course, the conversation was all guarded. It was never as obvious as, you know, they buy a Learjet and, and travel the world, but it was, it was enough internet for, uh, for police to, uh, to build a case. i got to say, when I was reading the book, I thought, whilst uh, Stanton might have been an excellent police officer, he was a pretty bad organised criminal. The two of them, it was a bit of a comedy of errors. They got upfront funding um, from the gang and they didn't exactly um, use the money wisely. No, look, they had, uh, there, were, there were so many, uh, so many errors in, in how, they, uh, how they operated. It was just ridiculous. They were, they were losing money. Uh, they couldn't keep, uh, keep track of it. They were literally, they had a sack full of money at one stage, which... Uh, Bill just had in the in the back of the cupboard, which is why I stumbled onto and thought, "Hang on a minute, I don't recognise this much uh, this much profit going around." Um, yeah, they 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 didn't know what was going on. They couldn't uh, couldn't track or trace it, um, and that was part of the problem for police either. If, if if their targets couldn't follow where their money was and how they were using it, then how on earth could uh, could they do the same thing? And and Mark as well was spending a lot of money, and no one could quite work out where. And then they discovered that the uh, the father too was actually um, uh, in a relationship with another woman. So he was having an affair with another woman, and she was turning up with all sorts of lovely Tiffany bracelets and watches and trips overseas, you know, at five-star resorts and uh, and those sort of thing. All of a sudden, when police discovered the girlfriend, we thought, well, there's a bit of a motive. There's sort of the money, but they had another problem because that girlfriend wasn't just your. Uh, your ordinary gal, but she actually worked for ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. So she was a quite a, a senior law enforcer in the analytical side of things. So she wasn't an operative, but she was in the analytical side of it. She had access to a lot of intelligence information as well. All of a sudden, bang, the Australian Federal Police were left with another very difficult situation which escalated their, uh, their investigation into the stratosphere. I mean, this was really now becoming, by this stage, by 2000, and late 2007, the most extensive, covert and sensitive police investigation in the history of the Australian Federal Police. I mean, it was just huge, and the lengths they were going to to protect their uh, their case were, uh, were extraordinary. Um, they were having to send now police, pretty much basing police over in, uh, in Holland almost permanently because the amount of intelligence that was coming through um, from the Dutch police, spying on a cartel over there, but about um, suspects in Australia and elsewhere was immense. There was tons of this stuff. There were hours of listening devices. 
So they had to send officers overseas um, pretty much on a permanent basis, and of course they had to have round-the-clock um, monitoring of suspects in Australia. Um, in the end, they had to move to a whole new office, um, and that office in itself had to have a cover story because they couldn't let any other police agent or police officer know exactly what they were doing because everybody was a friend of Mark. No one, uh, uh, you know, would say a wrong word about him. He was and a real hero, was wasn't he? He was a, everyone's hero in the in the force. Absolutely, absolutely. And he was a mentor to so many young officers who thought, that's the sort of uh, bloke I want to be. You know, he was a bit of a bit of an action man, you know, despite the fact that he'd been in the game for 30 years. You know, he still was getting his hands dirty. He still had a, an extensive, uh, you know, little black book of, uh, of informants that he was running. Um, officially, that is, he'd obviously um, tell his bosses which informants he was running and what they were doing. Uh, and also, you know, he was—he pushed the envelope. He was—he was bringing cases to court that almost bordered on, on criminality. But a police officer would argue, you know, you've got to do stuff. You've got to do stuff to get these cases. So, you know, if, if, you, if you've got to give someone some money so he can go buy cocaine, so then we can catch who he's selling it to. So be it. Now, there's obviously a lot of um, uh, technical, legal questions about that sort of behaviour and a lot of ethical questions about that sort of behaviour, but hey, it was Mark Stand, and, and that was the attitude that pretty much uh, all his colleagues uh, 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 you know, held, that he was an absolute hero to him. Which is one of the reasons why the inquiry had to be so thorough, because had they brought a charge against him and that charge had failed, there would have been disaster across the board in the... Uh, senior ranks of the policing agencies in Australia. Yeah, and look, you've got to imagine there are so many um, agencies, uh, law enforcement agencies in Australia as well, so it's not just one group, and they are not a happy family, make no mistake about that. They're territorial, they they bitter, they they argue, they, um, they obviously fight for proceeds of crime, which are obviously very lucrative, it makes them look good on the books. So everybody wants the proceeds of crime to pour back into their uh, their state coffers or their federal um, uh, coffers into their treasuries. Uh, so they're they're very much a, a divided community. They're getting slightly better, and every now and then they they go through great phases where they are all friends. But uh, but generally, no, they're all in competition with each other. and can only liaise every now and then. Mm. Now there was two sets of pressure. One, the Dutch wanted to bring charges against the groups in Europe, which would have spoiled the case in Australia. But on the other side, uh, um, uh, Standen and Bill had lost a lot of money in, a, in a, a fake investment, and they were trying to get a conclusion so to their in, um, importation so they could actually make the money to pay back the loan they'd received from that same gang. Is that correct? Yeah, look, that's right. You have to, um, you have to remember that uh, the Netherlands is the world's leading producer of synthetic drugs, uh, MDMA, ecstasy, uh, and the like. I mean, no country does it bigger and better than the Netherlands. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is. Ask a Dutch police officer, they're not sure why, why it is, um, except for the fact that the, uh, the natural resources are there. You know, they have mobile pill presses. They have semi-trailers driving around the streets um, churning through these, uh, uh, you know, the back streets, I should say, in the country, not in the uh, in the cities, but they're churning through making these uh, these pills for international export uh, and just dumping the byproduct of which there is a significant amount just in the in the on the side of the road. Of course, it all just goes into the um, 
the canals, of, of course, which crisscross all over uh, all over the Netherlands. Um, so they're the world's leading producers uh, of these drugs, and the, the the Dutch police just didn't want to spend any more time on this case. You know, how long were they going to sit of all this information? They could have gone straight away and made um, made a dozen arrests of some very senior figures, including a uh, a dodgy copper within their own ranks. But you know, there was a there was an international poker player um, uh, who they were uh, was a target of the Dutch police. There was a, an, an international sports star who they were following. There was a police officer. There was a, a multi-millionaire businessman that they were they were following. So they were telling the Australian police, "Listen, we've had enough. We want to go in on these guys. You've got enough. Go in on yours." And uh, the Australian police had to keep them calm and say, "Hey, listen, don't move. Don't do anything yet." We haven't got enough. We've got us to build the case, and you've got to understand that the man we're going after is one of the senior, most senior law enforcers in Australia. We can't afford to blow this. You've got to stay calm, and the Dutch would sort of go calm and stay calm for a couple of months, and then they'd agitate, agitate again and say, "Sorry, boys, we're going to move in on these guys." And in the end, um, uh, the then police commissioner Mick Kelty sent one of his most senior men, one of his deputies, over to Holland and say, "Listen." sort these out, convince these guys, this is why this case is so important to us, this is Mark Stan, and tell him who he is and what he's about and why we've got to get this right. Yeah. But let's talk about the, the, the importation of the rice and how that went awry. We nearly, the police case nearly fell over and Stan and, and Gelatoli lose their money. Yeah, look, as you mentioned uh, a moment ago, that was, that was one of the things they had to send money to, to buy the narcotics or the precursor drugs to then hide in the rice. But they were dealing with so many people by this stage. You know, there were contacts that the drugs were initially coming from, from China, uh, which are obviously one of the world's leading producers of legitimate um, pseudoephedrine and other precursor drugs. Um, so the, initially the drugs were coming from, uh, the precursor drugs were coming from China. Then they were going to come from um, Africa, uh, then, of course, it was like, no, it's going to come from Pakistan or via Pakistan. So they were starting to deal with a lot of people, and everyone they dealt with along the way um, would want money. Um, and Mark Stan and Bill Jones, what do we do? Who do we trust? Who are these people? Um, and, of course, every time they um, they deal with one guy, something would happen to him. They couldn't get hold of him again. One of the bosses actually died. He died of a, uh, died of a heart attack. So all of a sudden, um, the, the hapless... Uh, Stan and Jalalat, they had to work with, uh, with someone else. Um, so they're working with another major crime figure in, uh, in Pakistan. He started using his own product. So all of a sudden, he became no use to him. He became a, a, drug, a drug addict himself. And they're like, oh, hell. Okay, so who else are we going to deal with? And then, of course, they started sending money because Pakistan was demanding money. Well, if you want these drugs, you want us to release these drugs and this import. Uh, of course, no one was saying the word drugs. They were just saying Rice import. But if you want this import, you have to pay us more money. So they pay some money. Um, and then two days later, well, where's the import? No, no, you have to pay us a bit more because we have to do this, that, and the other. So, yeah. It sounds like a Russian bride We're hemorrhaging yeah. cash. Yeah. So, I used to do work on Russian bride scams. It's the same thing. I Just a bit more money, a bit more money, a bit more money. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, it's always one of those things, you know, at, at what point do you stop and cut your losses? Or do you just think, well, maybe if I just pay them a little more and then promise them heaps once they uh, make the delivery, you know, will that push them? Will that push them a bit closer towards it? Um, 
Uh, and in the end, uh, finally, they said, right, your shipment's on its way. The ship has left our, uh, you know, the container's left our, our docks. It's on the ship. It's on en route. Good luck to you. And, of course, the, the relief that the police heard <laughs> for the investigation <laughs> was, uh, was palpable, you know. And, of course, they heard the relief in the, uh, in the telephone intercepts with, uh, with Mark Sandon showing, expressing his relief that finally, you know, this, uh, this importation uh, was on its way. So the police intercept the importation as it arrives in the country. What did they find? Nothing. <laughs> Big, fat, zero, nada. And that was part of the problem. They, they got into the import. They got that container off the ship. Um, they then got customs to sort of effectively lie to, uh, to Mark Stanley and Bill Jolatley to say, oh, no, it hasn't left the docks. You know, it's still on the ship. We're still you know, getting it off, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, by that stage, police were going through it with a fine-tooth comb. They went through the entire sack after sack after sack of, uh, of rice. And uh, by the end of it, they worked through the night under floodlights. They had all sorts of special technical equipment that could detect uh, this drug, um, or these precursor drugs. And in the end, they said, no, there is nothing here whatsoever. And, of course, heart sank. This is a multi-million dollar investigation involving dozens and dozens of, uh, of officers around the clock, not to mention you know, a dozen other police forces around the world, and they've come up empty-handed. Well, they didn't know what to do, and, and for a while they did, they did nothing yeah. <laughs> other than say, well, release the rice, and, uh, and hopefully um, you know, with hidden cameras and, and microphones we might catch... Uh, Stan and Angela Utley having the same reaction, you know. Yeah. And what did the happen then? The product. So what happened when, when um, Mark and Bill actually get their shipment that has nothing in it? Uh, well, Stan didn't go anywhere anywhere near it. And of course, that was um, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, what would a police officer be doing in a warehouse um, searching through sacks of rice? But, uh, but Bill hired a... Uh, Hired a couple of hands, and they went through the uh, went through the sacks, and uh, obviously came up empty-handed. And then the chitter chatter was on the phone. You know, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Um, what do you mean it's not there? Well, the whole consignment uh, hasn't arrived. You know, again, still speaking in uh, in code. Um, but it was pretty much, you know, the gig was up. They realised uh, something had gone horribly wrong. Now, the initial stages, they never suspected that uh, it could have been the Australian police that either a removed the product. Um, because that just wouldn't have been likely. If anything, they would have left it in there so they could, uh, you know, follow the trail. So they suspected it might have been, you know, they might have been ripped off by um, by the Pakistanis somewhere along the line. And you know what? Still to this day, police don't know whatever happened to those drugs. Um, but they suspect it never actually left the, uh, the the docks in Pakistan and is still, um, you know, being enjoyed or on sold to uh, to other groups from there. Right. So how then did they make a case against Standard if they haven't got the shipment? Um, it was a very difficult case, but uh, you know it, they almost went with the the ordinary man test. You know, do people really speak like this? And of course, every um, answer that uh, or every question that they came up with, Mark Standard, he was very good, he was very quick, and he had an answer for. Well, you know, it was a bit of fun. So when I spoke in code, it's just the way I, I play games. Uh, what about this import business? Well, I wanted to do an import business. Well, what about this? What about that? What about this? Uh, you know, they threw every detail at him. You know, why were you contacting this person? What do you know about that person? Um, and of course, he had, he had pretty 
strong defence, actually. You know, I am a very senior law enforcement officer. I run a lot of informants in the community, overseas and elsewhere. Uh, this is what I do. I mix with bad guys. It doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. And that was his argument that he maintained all the way through. Um, a jury saw it differently. That on the probability, on the balance of probability, they sort of thought, you know what, you are a senior copper. You're earning a six-figure wage. Why, um, you know, were you doing all this extra stuff? Why were you looking to make more money? And also, where was all this extra money coming from? Why was Bill giving you all this cash? Um, you know, a lot of unanswered questions. And so they found him guilty. Yeah. And how long did he go away for? Um, well, still to be uh, still to be decided. I mean, there's um, he, he was at one stage looking for um, uh, looking for avenues out, but he, he's gone. Um, uh, uh, for, for appeals, that is, but he, he's going for about 20 years. Yeah. And he did, he's going to obviously have to be in some sort of protective custody because a lot of the people in the prison would be people that he put there. Yeah, exactly. And look, he had a very hard time uh, in the early days. You know, everybody knew him, not just the uh, the good guys and the law enforcers, but all the bad guys. He put a lot of people away and a lot of senior people too who with a lot of connections and contacts, particularly in prison. So... Uh, in the early days in prison, you know, they were throwing bags of feces um, at him um, from other cells. Uh, you know, there were whisperings through the walls, we're coming to get you, um, uh, and all the rest of it. So he's been in protective custody. He's almost been in, um, in full um, solitary confinement, almost, uh, because he spent so many hours in his cell and or released into, a, into the, the ground, but by himself, not mixing with other, uh, with other prisoners. Um, so, yeah, he's, uh, he's doing it tough. I think he'll probably get uh, early parole. Um, I think the consensus was that, uh, uh, you know, it was a fairly big sentence, but on the other hand, the judge said it is going to be a fairly big sentence. You're in a position of trust. You're not just ordinary uh, guy on the street trying to make a buck through a drug import. You were in a massive position of trust. Um, on, a, on an international scale, you breach that trust. You've got to go for the uh, the highest figure. You've got to go for the, for the biggest sentence. So, uh, but time will tell. Time will tell. When he does get released, he'll be uh, he'll be 67 years old. Um, he would have learned his lesson well and truly by then, I say. He was actually had a a friend in his protective custody. A judge was there as well. Who, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this story. I, it was another one that everyone in Australia was watching at the time, but you just want to quickly tell everyone how this judge ended up in prison. Yeah, Marcus Einfeld, he was a, a, a character in himself, a very powerful figure, um, not just in the judiciary, but also in the, uh, in the community. He was a well-known community leader, um, and he got done by, uh, by faking a, um, a speeding ticket, didn't he? he uh, yes. He was... He was caught and said, no, it wasn't me that was driving at the uh, driving behind the wheel at the time and got someone else to take the fall for him, of course. Well, he, he, he initially, uh, he initially put the name down of a woman who'd been dead for three years as the person who <laughs> yeah, was driving. Yeah, exactly. A professor from overseas had been dead for, uh, for years and it was, in fact, um, uh, colleagues on my newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, that, uh, that uh, investigated his, uh, his alibi and, uh, and found out that this professor had been dead for well before she could have been uh, possibly driving his car. Um, and so they wrote that story um, because before then he got away with it. It wasn't me, that was it. Um, and of course, once they, uh, they exposed that story, um, he, was, he was promptly uh, arrested, 
charged and then did, uh, did jail time because he had to go into protective custody as well because a lot of people behind bars he put there. Um, so, yeah, Mark, he, he and Mark shared a, shared a joint cell and, uh, you know, they'd play um, lots of crosses and do Scrabble and do art together and all sorts of things. Unfortunately for, uh, for Stan and though um, Mark Kleinfeld, the judge, um, he, he got out. Um, uh, he moved to a different area and then he actually just got released. So, uh, yeah, no, Stan has been on his, on his pattern alone for a fair while now. Yeah, poor guy, poor guy. So what's next for you then, now that we know what happened to Stan, and what are you actually working on now? Any, are you going to um, look on another list? Yeah, well, I can't say too much about that, but I've been doing okay. a, uh, another um, uh, long-term uh, investigation, which is uh, which has been good. So that's uh, taken me to uh, to all over uh, all over Europe again. Um, but that should uh, should be quite interesting here from when I can uh, I can see a time that's that's going to be right for everybody to uh, to write about that. Uh, but yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been busy days. I've been five times to uh, to Ukraine. Um, for the conflict there with uh, with uh, Russia and the um, the, uh, the Russian-backed uh, militia, uh, and of course we've just had a, a, a peace accord signed there. But uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to believe that that uh, that accord is uh, is going to hold. Um, so yeah, I imagine I'll be uh, I'll be back there uh, uh, in coming months. But uh, yeah, busy days over here in Europe. Wonderful. Well, when you do put the book out, let me know, and we'll be able to have another conversation. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Yes. Well, thank you very much. So we've been talking today to Charles Miranda about his book, Deception, the true story of the international drug plot that brought down Australia's top law enforcer, Mark Standard. So thank you very much, Charles. Thanks.